The following is a sermon from Pastor David Salinas of Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. Absolutely no treasure is more important for us to have than the one that we wake up to each and every morning where we can face our sights to the heavens and say with a sincere heart, Jesus, you are my Lord. Our Christian faith. And that means that there is no treasure, no blessing greater that God can give to us that is more assaulted and more accosted in this world. I mean, I can't think of a treasure that is more targeted for destruction by the old evil foe and by our own sinful will and the whims of the world than our Christian faith. Can you? Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by many a woe, that will not tremble on the brink of poverty or woe. Oh, for a faith that shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without. Let me pray for that faith right now. Please bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, give us all such a mighty faith as this. And I approach you right now as that Greek Syrophoenician woman did, and I will not take no for an answer. I will eat every crumb that falls from your table, and I will not let you go until you bless us, and until you endow me and the people before me with a rich, a mighty, and a strong faith in you that will not shrink or tremble on the brink of whatever poverty or disaster or trauma faces us. Dear Lord Jesus, give us such a mighty faith as this. This is my sincere prayer. This is my heartfelt desire for all of us. This is my singular aim this morning with the message I'm about to preach to you. Praise be to the God of Israel, the Holy One. This is His greatest desire too. This is His promise that is unfailing. He promises in His Word to give us such a faith as this. He promises never to turn away any believer that comes to Him and pleads for His Holy Spirit and through the precious Word that He has given us to answer that prayer. Enter the story we call Ruth. It is in every respect and on multiple levels an epic love story. In a few moments, you will hear how this man named Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, dies, leaving behind his wife in a foreign land. But you will see this this staggering display of love by this woman's daughter-in-law. And then in the coming weeks, we will see love blossom between Ruth and that Israelite landowner and close relative of Naomi in Israel, And then you will see that man, Boaz, his his love for Naomi and Ruth be courageous and redeem them from ruin. But all of this, 
just simply serves to remind us of the love story that is hidden beneath all of that love story, and that is God's love story. Because in this book, we will see Elimelech's name prove true. God is king. And in his mighty, unstoppable love, his mighty, unstoppable love for you, he will not let misery, he will not let misfortune, he will not let any trauma thwart him from displaying his gracious will and from fulfilling his promise to save the likes of you and me. And so you will see every character being used by the Lord Almighty to fulfill the birth of King David, who will then be the forefather of David's greater son, our King Christ Jesus. And believe you this, the mighty, 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 unstoppable love of God will create in your hearts and in mine that mighty faith that we pray for and need the most. Open up your worship folders. Let the journey begin from bitter circumstances to sweet faith. Hear the love of God for you and believe like you never have before. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would become your husbands? No, return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, the great I am, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. 
There are many questions that we must ask ourselves as we begin this section in the book of Ruth. But there is one question that is answered right off the bat. The difficulties of life and the harshness of a decaying spiritual environment are no fertile ground for faith to bloom and blossom. The Holy Spirit already wants us to understand this as he inspires the writer to immediately set the context of when this whole thing is taking place. When, when does the writer say this story of Ruth happened? In the time when the judges ruled. What kind of a time were those? Well, if you haven't studied the book of Judges lately or, or maybe haven't recalled, the time of Judges was the time when everybody lived basically with a buffet-line religion where they, they chose to believe what they wanted to believe from God's word and discard the rest. The time when the judges ruled the land were the time when the Holy Spirit laments with great sadness that, that everyone did as he saw fit and that, that nobody wanted a king over them, certainly not the God, the true king over them, because this was the time before the kings came. And when the Holy Spirit inspires those words, he's not just talking about the time before they crowned King Saul. He is talking about the time when the people of God, by and large, had dethroned the great I Am from their hearts. And then, not only is the environment, the spiritual environment, the spirit of the times, such a harsh and bitter and cracked desert to live in for faith, but then, then the circumstances of life and how bitter they are for Naomi and her family. And bitter circumstances challenge God's promises. There are no two ways about it. And the circumstances that Naomi faced are on a level that we might only see in the Old Testament, say, like in, in a man like Job. Famine has hit the land. And whether the famine has been caused by a lack of rain or an abundance of enemies and raiders coming in to, to raid Israel's granaries or, or, or demolish their fields, the result is the same. There is not enough food. And just like in the Dust Bowl era of the 1930s during the Great Depression, it caused a migration westward into California, this famine has caused this family to migrate southeast to Moab, to enemy territory. And if you thought that the dangers, the spiritual dangers in Israel were great with all of the idols that littered the land and how fraught it was with false teaching, well, the land of Moab was even worse. And then as they settle in Moab, right when Naomi needs her husband the most, God calls him home. And she has just gotten over the loss, the temporary loss of her homeland and the permanent loss of her husband when a double tragedy that is inconceivable strikes. Both sons die. She is left without her husband and without any of her children. And so because these two, these two men had married Moabite women, now there's not just one widow but three. You talk about a great depression. 
Here is now this woman who is facing unbearable suffering and overwhelming loss in her present and is staring at a future that is as bleak as can be, especially in her culture. Because a woman without a husband and with sons in her culture was a woman without any financial support. The only thing she had staring before her was a life of destitute poverty, working her, her arthritic fingers to the bone until they buried her old, broken, grief-riddled body in the grave. And we, we, we must understand this, that there is no way for all of that harshness not, not to impact this woman. Abraham's nephew Lot, living in Sodom, did not get out unscathed morally or spiritually by living in the destituteness, the spiritual destituteness of his times. And it's hard to imagine that Naomi and her family didn't have their faith chipped away at either. And you know the spirit leaves no doubt that the harsh, bitter circumstances of her life, her trauma, wearied and wilted and drooped her faith in the one true and living God. Because how does this woman feel when she considers her losses, when she considers what God has taken from her? She feels cursed. She feels rejected and abandoned, and she says it herself. She urges her daughters-in-law to get away from her. It's almost like she's sensing the lightning bolt striking all around her, and she wants to protect the people that she loves, the last people that are remaining alive from getting hurt. Get away from me. Return home. Return to your family. And she even urges Ruth to do something that would make us go, yikes. She encourages her to go back to her false gods. Follow your sister. Your, uh, sister-in-law Orpah, and return home and return to your false gods. Why does she say that? Because the Lord's hand is against me. God is against me. And so we can see how the bitter circumstances of her life have turned this woman, her faith, this woman whose name means my sweet, my delight, Naomi, Naomi, turned that Naomi face bitter. We get it. We get the struggles of faith. We get the, the difficulty of the flower of faith in God to jut up out of this cracked Atacama desert from Chile. What are our times like in which we live? Is it not the time of the judges? Is this not the day when, by and large, people want to choose a smorgasbord, a buffet line religion, and believe what they want to believe and discard what they want to discard, but it doesn't suit them? Is this not the time when people, by and large, want to do as they see fit, and they want no other king in their heart ruling except for their own will and their own whim? And so we see it. We, we see the struggles and the impact on our young people. And recently, I, I was made aware yet, yet again when I came face to face with a young person who, at 13 years of age, confessed faith, undying loyalty to Christ and his word, and now as a young adult, isn't even sure if God exists. And, and when you probe the thoughts and the attitudes of your own heart, like I do sometimes, I'm unpleasantly surprised by what I find there. And we all know how the bitter circumstances of life 
can whittle away and, and chip away at our Christian faith. We all know this very well. Listen, if you can daydream, if you can imagine, if you can hope, then you can relate to Naomi. We have all had our visions. We have all had daydreams. We have all had hopes and expectations of how things in life should work out. We've even got it down to the details and the timeline. Yeah? But then reality hits, and, and it's, like, it's like the rain washing away the sidewalk chalk, and all of our dreams get muddled and swept away, and things don't turn out. And so maybe, maybe we don't feel exactly as abandoned and rejected and completely just completely spurned by the Almighty like Naomi did in her unbearable losses, but I bet you we feel like that missionary Stuart McAllister did in 1981. Stuart McAllister had gone to then Russia, to then Soviet Czechoslovakia, and he had come to deliver Bibles and Christian literature. He was caught and thrown into prison. And like what happened with John the Baptist, the more this man of mature faith lingered in his cell, the more the doubts of the sufferings that, that had been built up in him had started to gnaw away and chip away at his faith. And he says this, In my time in prison, I expected God to do certain things and to do them in a sensible way and time. I expected that God would act fairly quickly and I, I would sense his intervention. My reading of scripture, my grasp of God's promises, my trust in the reliability of God's word had led me to expect certain things and in a particular way. When this did not occur in the way I expected or in the timing that I thought it should, I was both confused and angry. Confused and angry and doubtful because of harsh circumstances. I can relate. Can you? But it's right here, dear people of God. It's right here. In the middle of this desert, this harshness, this land without even one solitary drop of water. Where Christ Jesus answers my prayer. It's in the middle of this harshness, bitter environment where the Lord Jesus fulfills and quenches his greatest thirst to keep saving you and me. It is right here where the Holy Spirit gives me the joy and the privilege fulfilling my aim for you this morning to give you a bright faith, a strong faith, a mighty, mighty faith. You see, I would just want to point out this. In this land of harshness, there is no way for faith to live. It, it shouldn't be, right? It shouldn't be. It's no surprise to us that Naomi struggles as she does in this kind of environment. What is surprising is that she has a faith left at all. It's stunning to consider that, that when she hears that the famine in Israel has let up and that there is food, she wants to go back to the promised land, even though she feels and senses that God's promises for her are not applicable and, and that they're not real for her. Even though she senses that God's hand is against her, she nevertheless reaches out a hand of blessing over her daughters-in-law whom she loves, and she prays, may the Lord bless you and show kindness to you. May the Lord bless you to find home in another husband. And then there is just simply this. It will become very apparent that Ruth is a believer, that she has come to know the true God, that, that she herself has on her lips the name of the Lord Almighty. How did that happen? 
How did this woman who lived in a foreign land, as Paul says, far away from the promises of God, without hope and without God in the world, how did she come to know the true God? Because Naomi and her family evangelized her. They shared her Messiah-centered faith with her. And speaking of Ruth, do you see the mighty flower of faith that blossoms out of this woman? In the harshness of her own environment, she displays something that is astonishing, that is incredible. Think about this. Everything in her experience, everything that she sees and that she feels is screaming this one point to her. Your mother-in-law, Naomi, has hit the nail on the head. This woman is cursed. Her mind has to be telling herself, girl, what kind of family did you marry into? This woman, if it wasn't for bad luck, she'd have no luck at all. This woman is cursed. Girl, don't be a dummy. You stay with your mother. You stay with your father and your brothers and sisters. If you go with this woman to Israel, you're only looking at a life of poverty, at a life of destituteness. You too are going to end up broken with your gnarled fingers in the grave. Stay here and find a nice Moabite man to marry and life will be good for you. Why would you ever go away from here? Stay put. Look, Orpah, your sister-in-law has the right idea. She is going back to her people. She is going back to her gods. But what does Naomi do? Or what Ruth do? What does Ruth, what does she estimate? She estimates what Garth Brooks sings. Blood is thicker than water. But love is thicker than blood. And, and she throws her arms around this woman who is cursed, not even caring that the lightning bolts are striking her, and she clings to this woman. I will not leave you. Don't urge me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. And watch this. Your God will be my God. Do you hear that? She's saying, she's saying, Dear woman, you are your name to me. You are now me, my sweet. And even though I love my mother, even though I love my father, you need me more. And I will cling to you and I will help you and I will be there for you. And what is more, because of this God that you have told me about, whatever was once to my prophet, I now consider loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing this God and the coming Christ of which you speak. For his sake, I, I lose all things. I consider it an acceptable loss that I may gain him, that I may be found in him. What a mighty, mighty, miraculous faith in the middle of this harsh desert. Listen to me. Listen to me. This is the mighty miracle that God has and continues to work in you and in me in the middle of whatever bitter circumstances have ever fallen our way. And he does it for the same reason and in the same way that he did for Naomi and Ruth.
the Lord Jesus, your God, like Ruth, only better, only more, throws out those pierced hands around you, and he clings to you, and he sighs and says, ah, but you are my Naomi, you are my sweet, my delight. And even though I love my father with whom I am one, with whom I share the same essence, you need me more. And so I don't cling to him, I cling to you. And from the promised land of paradise above to the desert drear of life I come and I cling to you, and I take upon myself your humanity, just cleansed of all of its sin, and I live for you. And, and I pour out my life's blood for you because my love for you is thicker than blood. And, and I will never leave you because in my word and in my supper and in the bath of my baptism, I come to you and there I send you my Holy Spirit and I cling to you for dear life by the very faith that I implant in you and I will never leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And nothing, nothing, not even death will ever separate you from me. Because of that great love of Christ and by virtue of that great love, you and I sit here right now believing and confessing his name despite whatever bitter circumstances or traumas or harshness or whatever has come into our life in the midst of living in a time and in a place where there is spiritual decay. Yet we sit here and like Naomi, we hope. We hope against hope. We sit here and like Ruth, we cling in love to each other and to the Lord Jesus. Dear people of the God who loves us more than anything we could possibly hope for or imagine, you keep, you keep hearing about that love, and you keep feasting on that love, and you keep bathing in that love as you remember the promises of baptism, and of this you can be sure. All of the bitterness that would ever well up in you will fall away and give way to this sweet, sweet reality. Yours will ever be brave, courageous, confident, beautiful faith. A faith of these mighty girls of faith.